the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Also live from Seattle, KGNW 820. I'm sitting in for the next few days and it's good to have you with us. Well, it was in October 1940 that President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. Well, this was a reiteration of his earlier assertion. We are keeping out of the wars. We are going on that are going on in Europe and Asia. Our opponents are seeking to frighten the country by telling people that the president administration is deliberately drifting into war. You know better than that. Well, Roosevelt, he campaigned on neutrality in 1940. He assured his constituents, I give to the people of this country this most solemn assurance There is no secret treaty, no secret obligation, no secret commitment, no secret understanding of any shape or form, direct or indirect, with any other government or any other nation in any part of the world to involve this nation in any war, end quote. Well, unfortunately, Germany's Germany's Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, and Japan's Prime Minister, uh, Tojo, didn't cooperate. It was on this day in 1941, December 7th, that more than 350 Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, killing 2,390 American servicemen and civilians and wounding 1,282 others. Shortly before 8 a.m. on the quiet Sunday morning of December 7, 1941, the Japanese fleet issued the order, Tora, 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 attack. Well, the peaceful calm was forever shattered by a brutal and unprovoked attack on Pearl Harbor by the Imperial Japanese Naval Forces as they they sent rather over 350 fighter planes, bombers and torpedo planes emblazoned with the stark red disc representing the rising sun. Well, the Japanese plan was simple, destroy the Pacific fleet. Pearl Harbor was caught unprepared and off guard, and in under two hours, the Japanese had destroyed or incapacitated the bulk of the U.S. battleships at anchor, leaving over 2,400 dead. The USS Arizona was dealt a death blow when a massive 1,800-pound bomb smashed through her decking and exploded her forward ammunition magazine. The ship sank with more than 1,700 men inside. Of the Arizona dead, only 229 were eventually recovered. The remainder of her crew remains entombed forever, standing watch. The next casualty was the USS Oklahoma, struck by multiple torpedoes, causing her to capsize with over 400 sailors aboard, losing their lives. 32 sailors were rescued from the hull, thanks to the historic efforts of a crew of workers led by a civilian, Julio de Castro, a Hawaiian native. The Oklahoma was eventually righted, however, was too damaged to be returned to service. Well, by the time the attack was over, every battleship in Pearl Harbor, USS Arizona, USS Oklahoma, USS California, USS West Virginia, the USS Utah, USS Maryland, USS Pennsylvania, the USS Tennessee, and the USS Nevada had sustained significant damage, and in total, 188 U.S. aircraft were destroyed with another 159 damage out just uh, over 400 planes in the Pacific fleet. 
Well, this devastating attack triggered a declaration of war by the United States, that uh, a country that had not intended to engage in war, and the Japanese incurred the mighty wrath of U.S. forces. So even though the Pacific fleet was crippled, the resolve of the forces, uh, U.S. forces eventually prevailed. It was uh, 78 years ago, a date that will go on in infamy, as it was said at the time. Only a small group of survivors remain, most well into their 90s. However, their spirit and their resolve lives on strong in the new generation of warriors who protect us from harm and sacrifice so very much so that we can enjoy the great freedoms for which they sacrifice so greatly. At Pearl Harbor and even again at 9-11, 2001, our troops fought fiercely to destroy enemies who threatened America. The cost of freedom is never cheap. It's paid for by the sacrifice of many brave young men and women who pay the ultimate price for our freedom. We must remain eternally grateful and show our appreciation to those who risk their lives every day. It's uh, been a long and difficult road for our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places around the world. They have fought so hard and sacrificed so much, but in that sacrifice, they have won many stunning victories and accomplished things they were told could not be done. For that, we are grateful and blessed to live in a nation protected by such courageous individuals, and I would encourage us all to remember those troops today and offer our support. Well, taking a look at the headlines of the day, President Trump urged his supporters to vote for Republican Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue to prevent the socialists and communists from gaining control of the U.S. Senate. There's never been a case where a state has had this prominence on Senate races, never together. And this is uh, something that's very important. And you have to get out and you have to vote, the president said at a rally in uh, Valdosta. Georgia. That was on Saturday. Well, Trump described the, uh, to the crowd how he saw the stakes in the twin Senate runoffs. The president said that Purdue's opponent, John Ossoff, and Loeffler's opponent, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, are the two most extreme far-left liberal candidates in history. Whether that uh, or not that's accurate, I couldn't say, but he implored Georgians to vote while still sowing distrust in the state's handling of the elections. In other developments, uh, Georgia's Governor Kemp again rejected lawmakers' uh, plan to replace electors after a call with President Trump. And Ossoff's debate next to an empty podium saying Purdue, his absent opponent, feels entitled to the vote. Well, Justice Alito, Associate Justice Alito, has moved up the Pennsylvania response date on their emergency application the day before the safe harbor deadline. U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Samuel Alito ordered Pennsylvania officials to respond to Representative Mike Kelly's election challenge a day earlier than previously scheduled, which will be on the same day known as the safe harbor deadline. Kelly, a Republican, is seeking to have the court toss all the state's mail-in ballots on the grounds that universal, no-excuses mail-in voting is unconstitutional and needs a constitutional amendment to authorize its provisions. Well, Justice Alito, who was appointed by President George W. Bush had previously ordered that the state's lawyers respond to Kelly's suit on December 9th, a day after the safe harbor date, which would mean that uh, Congress cannot challenge any electors already named in accordance with the state law. Well, the law frees up states from challenges as long as it settles legal issues and certifies results prior to the Electoral College meeting. Alito moved Kelly's case up 24 hours and wants state officials to respond by 9 a.m. on Tuesday, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported. And the report pointed out that the updated hearing on December 8th would give the court a few hours to act on information received. 
achieve. Well, the paper pointed out that uh, Richard L. Hansen, an election law professor at the University of California, Irvine, posted on his personal blog that he is not reading too much into Alito's move. He said that he believes that the chances the court grants any relief on this particular petition is virtually zero. Kelly, a Republican from Butler, Pennsylvania, wants the court to rule that more than 2.5 million mail-in ballots are tossed, which would um, all but secure a victory for President Trump in the Keystone State because a vote would be taken in the state's Republican-controlled Senate. In other developments, Justice Alito says mail-in ballots received after Election Day in Pennsylvania must be kept separate, and progressives are furious at the Supreme Court Justice Alito's comments. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but before we do, I want to let you know that Peter Wood will be joining me later this hour. He's the president of the National Association of American Scholars. He's also the author of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. The book is published by Encounter, and if you want to understand what that project was all about, uh, it's important because it is permeating our education system. This is the book to read. Peter Wood will join us uh, in the, the second half of this first hour of Live from Seattle and The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, also sitting in for Live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word, at least for the next few days. Coming up in our... Uh, Latter half of the second, uh, first hour of today's program, we'll talk with Peter Wood, president of the National Association of American Scholars. He's an anthropologist and the author of 1620, a critical response to the 1619 project. You're not going to want to miss that conversation. Again, turning to the headlines, California inmates apparently uh, may have built $400 million from the state's unemployment fund. Authorities there are investigating allegations that prisoners in the state may have committed unemployment benefits fraud to the tune of $400 million with $5 million in fraudulent payments at one facility in San Diego alone. So you have um, convicted criminals who are breaking the law. They're Kind of surprised. Well, the Los Angeles Times reported that the investigation is in its early stages. And Summer Steffen, the San Diego County District Attorney, said a forensic investigation will take time and uh, resources, but it's necessary to hold individuals responsible for gaming the system at a time when our economy and our communities are already hurting with the ongoing pandemic. Well, the report said that some of the $400 million in benefits were sent to about 100 prisoners on death row. Prosecutors have been critical of the state's Employment Development Department and claim that the department is still sending payments to inmates despite knowing about the fraud. The Sacramento Bee reported. California fraud suspects uh, uh, used unemployment uh, cards to make purchases as well and access cash, according to authorities. Well, President Trump plans to outshine Biden on Inauguration Day. I mean, how does an outgoing president outshine an incoming president? Well, with an opposing rally. Rudy Giuliani has tested positive for coronavirus. And San Diego School, a school, has been, um, uh, teachers have been offered white privilege training where participants commit to being anti-racist. And a California sheriff tells Governor Newsom's county uh, won't be blackmailed, bullied, or used as a muscle against residents. And a California man punched a 350-pound bear in the face to save his beloved dog, Buddy. Okay, it may not be all that relevant, but I thought it was a pretty interesting story. Well, the FBA, FB, FDA rather, will hold emergency use authorization hearings for Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and Chick-fil-A is suing a poultry supplier alleging price-fixing. 
Amazon and Yeti have teamed up with joint lawsuits against alleged counterfeiters, and Costco is extending special senior shopping hours indefinitely due to COVID-19. Well, 15 law students were notified they hadn't passed the bar exam after being told they had. You almost feel like they need to just get the uh, certification because they were misled. They've celebrated. Their family and friends all think they've passed the bar, only to later learn No, not so much. Well, Democrat Raphael Warnock still declines to say if he'd vote to pack the Supreme Court, although it's not likely under the current administration or the incoming administration. In a debate with Senator Kelly Loeffler on Sunday, Democrat Raphael Warnock, he dodged the question with this absurd statement. I know that's an interesting question for people inside the Beltway to discuss. They're wondering when uh, when in the world are they going to get a COVID relief plan? Senator Loeffler quite accurately kept referring to him as a radical left Raphael Warnock, trying to make her point. That runoff coming up. Well, as I mentioned, Giuliani has tested positive for COVID-19. After traveling quite a bit on behalf of President Trump, Giuliani late yesterday said, thank you to all my friends and followers for all the prayers and kind wishes. I'm getting great care and feeling good, recovering quickly and keeping up with everything, the statement uh, read. Well, presumptive presidential um, president, I guess, uh, Joe Biden has gone extremely pro-abortion with the HHS secretary pick. Um, ADF has uh, Alliance Defending Freedom had to go um, all the way to the Supreme Court to stop Bikara, his uh, nominee, from forcing religious pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise for abortions. He's the extremist who has uh, no regard for conscience or protecting life. There's nothing moderate about that pick, nothing. Dr. Moeller points out that Biden's choice of, of Xavier Bacara as HHS secretary shows the abject lie of the moderate Biden and set up a fight, uh, sets up a fight. The Republicans in the Senate had better not lose. Conservatives in Georgia, are you paying attention? All eyes are on you. Voter registration ends on Monday. Well, the Lancaster City Council gave a vote of no confidence to the L.A. County Public Health Director. The beginning of breaking away from the tentacles of Los Angeles, the vote was unanimous. And a study finds the U.S. media covers COVID far more negatively even covering good news as bad. From the story, this imbalance in media coverage has created a climate of fear that has real consequences. Millions of children have skipped their routine vaccinations this year. The consequent drop in immunizations will leave every community in the U.S. in greater danger of such highly contagious diseases as measles, whooping cough, and even polio. The same type of fear-based response led to elective surgeries being canceled by either patients or the hospitals scheduled to conduct them. And Brian Babin, the Republican out of Texas, introduced a bill stating uh, voters must be alive to cast ballots. No, this is a serious story. The bill comes with charges by President Trump and others of voter fraud, especially that the ballots of deceased individuals were cast in the absentee in the 2020 presidential election. Babin's press release says we've uncovered some fraudulent plans to register a bunch of dead people to vote down in South Florida. And it's easiest, uh, the easiest thing in the world for those local counties to purge their voter list of deceased individuals. All they have to do is to go to the Social Security system and cross check against their deceased Social Security recipients on their list and then purge them off the voter list. Now, it's already illegal for uh, the dead to vote, but nonetheless, this seemed necessary. Well, Santa is forced to get creative for 2020 Christmas, with many places abandoning the tradition altogether. There's no uh, mall where Santa Claus is sitting waiting for kids to sit on his knee. 
Well, a Michigan judge is allowing a probe of Dominion voting machines. And for the F- or the CDC, rather, Biden picks Rochelle Walensky. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. Congress closes in on a $908 billion aid bill. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi will now accept the smaller relief bill because, as she says, we have a new president. Well, I thought we only had one at a time, and the current president is still Donald Trump. Now, who's contesting the election? Well, the Democrat House could overturn results in Iowa and New York. Well, House Democrats are uh, sweating, having lost at least 10 seats when they were supposed to gain that many. If Ms. Miller-Meeks and Ms. Uh, Teeny uh, prevail, the House will likely be split 222 to 2013, uh, leaving the GOP five seats from a majority in 2022 and potentially narrowing Nancy Pelosi's path to be reelected as Speaker in January. The Democratic pressure to do everything in their power to prevent these, lo- these two losses will be immense. And uh, the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, is urging John Durham to release his interim report in order to protect the investigation. And John Brennan lies about uh, the Steele dossier as Chris Wallace nods along as if it were true. And the House passed a bill to end the federal marijuana prohibition. And uh, president-elect, presumed uh, Joe Biden, has changed his story on Osama bin Laden, the raid, again. Despite his initial hesitation, Biden said he ultimately urged Obama in a private Oval Office conversation to give the green light and to follow your instincts on this one. Biden's account contradicts his original remarks from eight years ago when he claimed during a retreat in Maryland for congressional Democrats that he encouraged Obama to hold off on the raid. Apparently both must be true. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Up next, we'll hear from Peter Wood. He's president of the National Association of American Scholars and the author of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm also sitting in for live from Seattle, KGNW 820, The Word. Glad to have you with us. Well, on Sunday, August the 18th, 2019, the New York Times published a special issue of the New York Times magazine, and they announced their 1619 project. Along with the 100-page magazine, the New York Times released a uh, 16-page newsprint section under the same title and headlined, We've Got to Tell the Unvarnished Truth. Well, on the opening page of the magazine, Jack Silverstein, the Times editor-in-chief, stated the purpose for the project. It was a major initiative, he said, to reframe American history by considering what would what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's founding birth. Well, the question is, I suppose, when was America founded and what does it uh, what does it mean? Does it matter if it's 1619, 1620 or 1776? Well, my next guest, Peter Wood, uh, joins us to talk about just that. He is the president of the National Association of Scholars and author of the new book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. A former professor of anthropology and college provost, he is the author of several books about American culture, including diversity, the invention of of a concept, and a bee in the mouth, anger in America now. He is a frequent media guest. He is the editor-in-chief of the journal Academic Questions, and is widely published essayist. In 2019, he received the Gene Kirkpatrick Prize for Contributions to Academic Freedom. He's based in New York. Today, he joins us to talk about his very important book, 1620. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, there's so much discussion about 
1619 Project, and your book is a critical response to that project. Let me just begin by asking you why you felt compelled to write a response to the 1619 Project. Well, like you, I got up on the morning of August 18th, 2019, read the New York Times magazine cover to cover, and decided right then and there that some kind of response was needed. I decided that because I know enough American history to have spotted some glaring errors in what had been put forward. I, being the head of an organization of scholars, the next day I called a staff meeting and said, we've got to get on this. And one of my staff members suggested that we call our response uh, 1620 project after the uh, Mayflower Compact of 1620. Mm -hmm. And I just, I've run with that ever since. So uh, there have been many historians who have jumped on this and many essays that have been written about it. I thought what was needed was a synthesis that would put forward the core argument to a broader public, explain what the historians are on about, uh, find the good things as well as the bad things in the 1619 Project, and propose an alternative. And that's what the book is. Now, I mentioned that the uh, the editor of the New York Times stated quite clearly what the major initiative was about. From your perspective, why did the New York Times decide to reframe American history, and why now and this particular frame? Well, it's part of the New York Times' uh, self-acknowledged pivot to race. Now, it had been doing that for a while, and the New York Times, if you read it, almost every page has articles about race on it these days, everything from the cooking section to the entertainment section, let alone the political news. Um, but then uh, there's a more specific context, which is in the summer of 2019, the uh, Mueller investigation had turned up dry. There was nothing there as far as Trump colluding with President Vladimir Putin to steal the American election. The Times held a high-level council to decide what to do. They decided that the better tactic to bring down President Trump was to go after him as a racial antagonist. And uh, it had happened that the 1619 project was already in the works as far back as January of 2019, but now it had a special urgency, and it became the object of the Times spending lavish amounts of money to turn this uh, a newspaper supplement into a, a school curriculum and a national debate. It lies in the background now of a lot of the racial polarization that uh, had already existed, but has been accelerated and intensified dramatically in the years since. In your book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, you point out that the central tenets of the 1619 Project are that Americans have grossly misunderstood the origins and nature of American society and that slavery is the pivotal institution in American history. Um, it includes the idea that America began with the arrival of slaves in Virginia in August of 1619, that the primary purpose of the colonists, uh, colonists rather, who declared independence from Britain in 1776 was to preserve American slavery from the danger of Britons outlawing it, and that the southern plantation system of growing cotton with slave labor is the foundation of modern American capitalism, that Abraham Lincoln was a racist who had no interest in conferring real citizenship on those who were enslaved. Now, I'm an 
African-American. I descended from slaves. What's important to me here is the truth about the history of this nation. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the uh, the individual who was the, the primary mover behind the 1619 Project even admitted that this isn't actually history. Um, it, it's considered something else. And yet the accolades that has have come following the 1619 Project has sort of quieted that uh, that idea that, well, yeah, this isn't exactly history, but it sort of is. Well, initially, the Times certainly claimed it was history. Nicole Hannah-Jones changed yes. her mind about that after it became clear that the assertions that you just recited cannot be backed up. They're just not factual. Or, or if there's a factual element and it has been grossly distorted, slaves did arrive in Virginia in August of 1619, which she doesn't say is that they were soon set free because Virginia didn't recognize slavery. It treated them as indentured servants. They soon were set free. They intermarried with the white population. They became landowners. They sued and won cases in court. So the the idea that that was the beginning of racial oppression in the British colonies of North America is flatly untrue. Historically, slavery began sometime later than that. The exact date's hard to pin down, but about 50 years later. Why tell it as as a, a just-so story? I don't know. I guess they wanted that even number of 400 years ago from the present. Um, but um, there is to be told in American history, a lot to be said about racial oppression and about slavery. It should be told, but it should be told accurately. And mm-hmm. putting this yes. forward as a, uh, as a, quote, narrative, which is the word that now substitutes for history, a, a narrative that isn't true is a fairy tale. It's, it's not something that we should be using to frame our current judgments about who we are as a people or where we were as a people over the course of these century, centuries since the Jamestown event. Now, regardless of the historicity of the 1619 Project, let me ask how it is influencing education and how it's being embraced as true history, because I think most of the American people are woefully ignorant of history, and we've replaced fact with, as you pointed out, narrative. Is this good scholarship, and how, um, how influential has it become since its publication just a short time ago? Well, it's terrible scholarship, but it has become immensely influential. Uh, the last page of the original publication was a statement by the Pulitzer Center that they were turning it into a curriculum suitable for every grade level in the schools. Uh, they went ahead and did that. They soon announced they had 4,000 teachers signed up to teach it. Several major school districts, including Chicago and Buffalo, adopted it wholesale as part of how they were going to teach history at every grade level. Uh, it's made itself, uh, let's say, easily blended with the uh, online or remote education that many schools have had to adopt during the shutdown. Uh, It's modular. It can be adapted easily to many different circumstances. And the schools have generally found it a very uh, uh, helpful addition to how history is taught. I see in the world of uh, K-12 education, uh, very little critical scrutiny of it. It just sounds like such a great thing. And at a moment when racial resentment is running high and polarization is out there, the anti-racist uh, desires of people of all colors have come to the fore. This looks like part of the answer. Well, let's let's teach this history that it sets things right. It gives due weight to the experience of African-Americans in the new world. We weren't doing a good enough job on that in the past 
if we adopt this, we'll solve the problem. Um, and that moment to stop and think, well, is this the right story? Is it a true story? Just doesn't seem to be happening. Um, now, I go around the country, or I was going around the country in person before the shutdown, asking people about the 1619 Project. I found almost everywhere I went that just ordinary people had never heard of it or mm-hmm. had only the dimmest idea of what it is. Um, I find that dangerous and that it, what it means is that what's happened in the schools, this massive promotional effort to get it taught to young people, is not meeting any resistance from parents or the general public who don't know that it's there. Um, and that, that seems to me to be the biggest worry. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, you uh, methodically chronicle the project's sloppiness with facts, its indefensible historical interpretations, its agenda of stoking racial grievance. Um, How have historians reacted to this project and its inaccuracies? And is that at least a partial explanation as to why the the chief editor kind of backed off, at least temporarily? Um, The historians, I think, fall into two or three categories. One is a handful, about 20 or 30 pretty prominent historians have come out on the record finding the faults with it and more or less begging the New York Times to fix it. These weren't conservative historians. Mostly they were left of center and sometimes strongly so, but they were very upset about the inaccuracies. They wrote petitions to the Times asking them to correct the errors Uh, Jake Silverstein, the editor there, brushed them aside. Nicole Hannah-Jones just kept saying the same errors over and over again as she crisscrossed the country with her lectures. Uh, So nothing happened until the New York Times' own fact-checker came forward and said, hey, I warned them that uh, that thing about the American Revolution isn't true. At that point, the Times backed down a little bit. But this happens against the backdrop of the great majority of American historians teaching at colleges and universities who have been stone silent throughout all of this. Now, there are uh, history blogs and uh, places where there's forums for historians to express their views. And there we learned that the silence was not inadvertent. They just decided they didn't want to be in the position of undercutting the teaching of African-American history, even if it wasn't true. It's an astonishing thing that the fraternity of historians in this country were unwilling to face up to the problem of a mythological version of history being jammed into the schools, and they were going to stay silent out of deference to uh, what they take to be the uh, the sort of morally superior stand of let's let's be uh, forthright in supporting Nicole Hannah Jones and company. Uh, so those are the two sides. Of course, there's a third smaller element, which are historians who actually think this thing is true. Um, I haven't met any of them, but I have no doubt they exist. <laughs> We're talking with uh, Peter Wood. He's the president of the National Association of American Scholars, and he's the author of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. The book is published by Encounter, and it seems to me it's critical that we understand the problems with the 1619 Project. And as an African-American, I want to emphasize that, uh, that we understand the, the problems with this a piece of pseudo-scholarship and respond to it appropriately. We need to take a quick break. 
I'm Georgine Rice. You're also listening to Live from Seattle, KGNW 820 The Word. We'll be back in a moment to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're also listening to KGNW 820 The Word, our sort of cousin in Seattle. Glad to have you with us. I'm continuing my conversation with Peter Wood. He is president of the National Association of American Scholars and the author of 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Let me ask you to um, mention, you mentioned the American Revolution, but ask you to comment on some of the major errors and misinterpretations of history uh, in the 1619 Project, uh, the Revolutionary War being one of them. Well, on the case of the American Revolution, Hannah Jones's assertion is that the revolution was fought to defend the institution of slavery against the threat that the British would bring it to an end. Um, well, there's pretty good evidence of what Americans were thinking, the colonists were thinking when they rebelled against the crown. We call that the Declaration of Independence, which listed a great many grievances against the crown. And it doesn't happen to mention protecting slavery from that threat of emancipation. Uh, we also have the newspapers of the time and the letters and diaries of people who lived then. There is no evidence whatsoever that any American even thought that was a possibility. And there's plenty of evidence on the other side and that the British were engaged in the slave trade in a major way. They were one of the largest slave trading nations in the world. They were supplying their plantations in the Caribbean with slaves, and they were bringing more slaves to North America than North Americans wanted. That was one of George Washington's grievances. So the idea that we somehow were fighting the revolution to maintain slavery is just absurd. Uh, there was a threat to the institution of slavery that was arising around that time. We call that threat the abolition movement, which had begun in New England in the decade before the American Revolution. So, yes, there was a, uh, some sunlight on the horizon that slavery might come to an end, but it wasn't from the British. It was from Americans. So that's one instance where uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones just goes uh, off into outer space with a claim that has no backing at all. And uh, the Times eventually retreated a little bit on that, and they, they added the words some of the Americans were fighting for that purpose. But uh, the fact is, no American was. There's no evidence that a single living person in 1776 said, let's go fight the British to defend the institution of slavery. Um, I realize time is always limited, so I don't want to just go on and on about this, but among the claims that the 1619 project makes that uh, I found initially most upsetting was the idea that every advance in civil rights for blacks in America was wholly on the basis of their own mm -hmm. efforts, which erases not only the abolition movement, but the entire history of civil rights in this country, which was a joint enterprise with people of all races who wanted to advance civil rights together and to just push all those other people out of the picture, it seemed to me offensive. And uh, that was really one of the things that got me started in this. Uh, the uh, Why do we need to erase every good impulse that Americans have had towards ending mistakes that our ancestors made. I don't get it. But that was part of Nicole Hannah-Jones's uh, uh, brief in this document. Um, 
But if you go through the entire 100 pages of the original 1619 project, you've got about 100 pages of mistakes and errors or just absurd hypotheses. So it's in this project that we learn that traffic jams in America are the result of racism. Uh, how so? Well, the interstate highway system was built in order to uh, cabin African-American communities in the inner city, and now we're paying the consequences of uh, that diabolical plot, or that the reason that uh, the United States doesn't have a single-payer health care system is that after the Civil War, efforts were made to make sure that blacks did not get adequate access to health care then, and we're still following that path. Um, everything turns out to be part of a plot by white people to prevent or uh, uh, in any other way hinder the advancement of blacks. Um, this is uh, a kind of grand conspiracy theory. It leaves the uh, uh, development of North America as a, a free and prospering economy on both sides of our border as a matter that derives solely and entirely from the South's plantation system, where what's called, or what they called, low-road capitalism took root and was perfected. And the reason that uh, we have capitalism in this country that grinds the poor down and prevents people from advancing is that that's, that, too, is a legacy of slavery. So it all boils down to that. So it's fair to say that the 1619 Project is inherently political. Uh, I, absolutely, it is. Uh, its purposes were political from the get-go. Um, Hannah Jones has said that uh, she doesn't say this in the 1619 Project, but soon afterwards she began saying it, that her, her chief purpose was to get reparations for slavery for every living descendant of a former African slave in this country. Um, and she went back to the New York Times a few months ago and uh, published another long article titled what is owed, which is her uh, uh, case for reparations. Now, you contend in your book that um, the proper starting point of the American story is 1620, which is, of course, the title of your book, with the signaling of the, the signing, rather, of the Mayflower Compact. We just celebrated what the uh, anniversary of that just uh, days ago. Um, aboard the ship before the pilgrims set foot in Massachusetts. You also go into some detail, which I think is very helpful, about the history of slavery uh, on this continent and, uh, for that matter, around the world that I think gives us a broader, um, important context to understand what happened here. Can you comment uh, briefly on both of those? Okay, well, I'll start with the slavery. Um, slavery was a near-universal institution. I'm an anthropologist and one with very broad interests, and it's hard to find a place in the world where slavery hadn't taken root. Uh, it existed in North America and South America long before any European set foot on these continents. Native American tribes enslaved each other. When Europeans came along, it enslaved them and it enslaved blacks as well. The uh, so slavery was here. The Spanish and the Portuguese were engaged in a wholesale enslavement of blacks, bringing them to work on plantations and mines in the New World. The slaves that were brought to Virginia were slaves that were on their way to Mexico when an English pirate ship captured some of them and brought them north. The uh, 
slavery being an ubiquitous institution, the wonder is that it ended, uh, that it's not, not that it was ever here, but that the United States became a nation that emancipated its slaves. It took tremendous effort and a civil war to achieve that, but it was achieved, and we amended our constitution to outlaw it. Those were steps that were pretty audacious in their times. Anyway, slavery is not the mystery to be solved. Emancipation is the mystery to be solved. How, after millennia of enslaving people, did one nation decide that this had to end and then was willing to, at the cost of over 600,000 lives lost in the Civil War, actually achieve that end? Um, Now, on the the Mayflower, um, that story used to be so well known that it wouldn't have been bothered telling it again, but it's sort of faded from memory. Mm-hmm. I think the, the key thing about the, the arrival of the Mayflower was that it wasn't just a bunch of religious dissenters, those people we call the pilgrims. It was a ship that was about half and half. The other half were people who were just ordinary Englishmen seeking to find their way to northern Virginia to become settlers, farmers, and merchants. Uh, The ship was blown off course. It ended up in New England, which was basically unclaimed territory. The, The settlers on board said, hey, that contract we signed back in England uh, to work in the New World, null and void. We're now free people. We can go where we want and do whatever we want. That alarmed the religious faction. They were squabbling over what to do. They faced some real problems. They were arriving at the onset of winter. They'd already run out of food. They didn't know what kind of reception they would receive from the native inhabitants. So they decided to sit down together and they worked out what we call the Mayflower Compact. It's a very brief document, fewer than 200 words. But in it, they decided that they were going to govern themselves as a civil body politic. They were going to elect their own leaders. They were going to frame their own laws. They realized that they were still, in some sense, under the sovereignty of the English king, but that king was far away and had no representatives on hand so that they were going to have to figure out a way to live together peacefully. Uh, The compact basically abolished English hierarchy. There were the masters and the servants all signed it, the strangers, as the pilgrims called the secular bunch, and the pilgrims signed it. And when they finally did offboard at what we now call Plymouth, they abided by it for about 25 years until they were overwhelmed by the arrival of the people we call Puritans. Um, They also signed a treaty with Wampanoag Indians. That treaty lasted 50 years without any interruptions. What happened was in the Mayflower Compact, the first stirring of an idea of American self-government, of a free government decided on by the people who it was going to govern, and it was going to be under the rule of law, but not under a rule of law that favored one faction over another. So there's an idea of equality in it and an idea of freedom in it. And where do we see those ideas fully come to bloom? Well, in the Declaration of Independence 156 years later. Um, I wouldn't say that one finds in the study of history uh, a great many uh, hard and fast starting points of a new enterprise, but this is one of them. And when we look at the Mayflower Compact, we see the template of the settlement 
of much of North America because the idea of a kind of local self-government, the, the township form of government, became the standard across North America. Uh, it wasn't what was going on in Virginia where a company was running a captive colony that uh, became the model for settlement. It was this small New England town that basically figured out how to govern itself fairly and with the will of the people. That's why I call the book 1620. If we're going to look for starting points in our history, 1620 works a whole lot better than 1619. I don't want to erase 1619. I mean, it it happened. It's an event. We should know about it. But it doesn't really give us a a firm uh, foundation for understanding the country that came to be. If, in fact, you're desirous of having a firm understanding of that origin. I I wish we had more time, but we are out of time. This is a must-read book for those who want to understand the 1619 Project and why questions should be raised. Uh, I should mention, too, at the book, you um, provide resource for the average citizen to fight back against this project. Again, 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project. Peter Wood, thank you so much for the book and for taking the time to talk with us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. We'll be back with news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. I'm sitting in through the remainder of this week. KGNW 820, The Word. Returning to some of the day's headlines in a non-political, objective, journalistic fashion, ABC's George Stephanopoulos directs viewers to the Democratic fundraising page. <laughs> and the CDC director has approved a coronavirus vaccine plan on the latest on COVID-19. States have also submitted their vaccine um, uh, orders. And California residents are under strict stay-at-home orders through Christmas. No mystery there. It's on. Sweden's infection rate has soared above Britain. Germany and Spain. In education, Colombia failed to disclose $1 million in the Communist Chinese Party funding. That's the Chinese uh, government giving funding to Columbia University to the tune of a million dollars. And the Education Department confirms it's still investigating Princeton for system, systemic racism. A Texas A&M student required to meet with the uh, conduct office after placing a Trump sign on a police uh, public property uh, reveals uh, the status or the, the feelings on that campus and San Diego teachers are being forced to attend trainings in which they are called racists. Homeschooling is more than doubled during the pandemic. One can see why. Well, a judge orders the government to fully reinstate the DACA program and Trump has ordered the withdrawal of troops from Somalia. You may not have remembered there were troops there. Congress has moved to block the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan and Germany. And diplomats who became ill in Cuba and China may have been targeted with a type of radiation. At least five were killed, 34 shot in Chicago during another bloody weekend. On Tuesday, Chicago PD, they reported 3,790 people were shot through November the 30th compared to 2,400 in the same period last year. Murders increased by more than half with 716 homicides through the end of November compared with 464 in 2019. Meanwhile, New York City's shooting surge has reached levels unseen in years as well. The uptick in shooting across the Big Apple continued through November, with the NYPD reporting a surge of 112% for the month compared to the same time last year. The police department documented 115 shootings this November alone compared to 51 
uh, during the 2019 uh, November. Year to date, the department has seen gun violence skyrocket 95.8% compared to the first 11 months of 2019, shooting so far in 2020 compared to the uh, rate from last year. Well, in a double standard, an L.A. restaurant owner's outdoor dining area was shut down by the mayor. Days later, a film production company sets up an outdoor dining area 15 feet away. And Ohio is allowing full contact wrestling, but they're banning post-match handshakes. Okay. Prisoners have raised $30,000 to put a student in need through school, according to Inspire More. And a World War II vet has beat COVID-19 and celebrated his 104th birthday. Well, on this day in history, 1941, Japan launches a surprise attack on the U.S. Navy base in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii as part of its plan to conquer Southeast Asian territories. The raid, which claims 2,400 American lives, would prompt the United States to declare war against Japan the next day. 1787, Delaware becomes the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution, Delaware. 1972, America's last moon mission to date is launched as Apollo 17 blasts off from Cape Canaveral. 1987, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, he sets foot on American soil for the very first time, arriving for a Washington summit with President Ronald Reagan. 2004, Hamid Karzai is sworn in as Afghan's first popularly elected president. And 2017, Senator Al Franken, Democrat from Minnesota, announces his resignation after a series of sexual harassment allegations. Word is he's trying to revive his political career and may run for office again. Well, the Food and Drug Administration will consider emergency use authorization for Pfizer coronavirus vaccine candidate. Uh, That's going to be on Thursday and Moderna's vaccine candidate on the 17th of this month. The FDA's deliberations come after Pfizer and Moderna claim their vaccine was over 90 percent effective in clinical trials. Well, last week, the United Kingdom cleared the EUA uh, for Pfizer vaccines and is preparing to begin inoculating patients this week. U.S. Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar expressed optimism on Sunday that the vaccine would be authorized within days. If things are on track, the advisory committee goes well. I believe we could see FDA authorization within days, he told ABC News this week. But it's going to go according to FDA gold standard process. Um, And I'm going to make sure that it does, he said. Asked if there was any reason that the vaccine approval could be delayed. He responded, I don't know of any reason why the system is in any way off track. So that may be encouraging if you plan to seek that vaccination. Well, Biden's pick for his health team, including Vicara for HHS secretary and Fauci as top coronavirus advisor, was announced over the weekend. President-elect Biden announced on Monday that he intends to nominate California Attorney General Xavier Vicara for Secretary of Health and Human Services. He's cutting short his uh, term as the state's attorney general, which would have lasted until January of 2023. Republicans are already signaling their opposition to him. Xavier Becara spent his career attacking pro-life Americans and tried to force crisis pregnancy centers to advertise abortions. That's a quote from Senator Tom Cotton writing on Twitter. He's been a disaster in California and his, he is unqualified to lead HHS. I'll be voting no and Becara should be rejected by the Senate. Additionally, he's being chosen to lead HHS essentially puts him out of the running for the Senate seat that will open up once Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is sworn in. California Governor Gavin Newsom will appoint a senator to fill out that uh, the remainder of her term and Becara uh, was rumored to be a leading contender. 
Biden also named Dr. Anthony Fauci as his chief medical advisor on COVID-19. Fauci is currently director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And Biden said Fauci would continue to hold that position as well. Uh, Dr. Um, Vivek Murthy has been picked to return to his post as Surgeon General, which he held during the Obama administration. The Senate voted to confirm him 51 to 43 in 2014. Now, other picks that Biden announced on Monday are Chief of Infectious Diseases as Massachusetts General Hospital Dr. Rochelle Walensky for Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Also, Yale School of Medicine Professor Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith for COVID-19 Equity Task Force Chair. Former Obama Administration Official Jeff Zients for Coordinator of the COVID-19 Response and Counselor to the President. And Biden's Deputy Campaign Manager Natalie Quillian for Deputy Coordinator of the COVID-19 Response. Well, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris sat down for a joint interview with CNN's Jake Tapper. That was on Sunday. It was a typical, actually, it was on December 4th. Let's get the date right. It was the typical puff piece you would expect from the liberal media, but it got interesting when Tapper, Jake Tapper, asked Biden how he and Harris would handle their significant policy differences. Sort of a foolish question, given the fact that she was selected, knowing all of this, as his VP. Well, that question alone was rather odd. One of them is the president and the other is the vice president. Um, So uh, what is there to handle? But the question reinforces the idea that they are equals or that Harris is the president in waiting. Biden's response was, well, just bizarre. He said, like I told Barack, if I reach something that where there's a fundamental disagreement we have based on a moral principle, I'll develop some disease and say I have to resign. There's so much to unpack in all of that, but this is not how an astute politician who's been in office for nearly 50 years, would answer that kind of question. Now, maybe he thought it was humorous, but he didn't laugh after making the statement. Is he suggesting that Harris should resign the first time we have major disagreement, or is he going to resign? And Biden also indicated that he would uh, he would have lied to the American people about his health. So uh, has he been lying about his health in this past year? One might answer, but it was a rather peculiar exchange in the midst of all of that. Well, taking a look at some of the uh, challenges that remain in this election. I want to run down through some of them. We'll need to uh, make that uh, stretch into the next break. But the election day incident in Atlanta State Farm Arena that was first reported as a burst pipe was an overflowing urinal, we've learned, a state investigation said officially in Fulton County. Uh, late November the 3rd, the pipe burst in the arena around 6.07, causing a delay in several hours of several hours and counting absentee ballots. They also referred to the incident as a water leak. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger office opened an investigation into that incident, which um, uh, impacted the count and um, but didn't impact the recount with regard to Georgia. More on what's happening um, since then when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about some of what's pending with regard to the election. Now, it may be regarded by most as a done deal, but the challenges continue. Rudy Giuliani, who just this week was diagnosed with COVID-19, he says that three state legislatures may change the Electoral College. Um, uh, President Donald Trump's lawyer said that the legislatures of Arizona, Georgia and Michigan might end up deciding what electors are sent to the Electoral College, suggesting it could end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, he said that the GOP controlled legislatures in the three states could vote on sending their own slate of electors 
noting that such a move is supported by the U.S. Constitution. Both Giuliani and fellow Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis, they've lobbied state legislatures in recent days to reaffirm their power to choose their own electors due to evidence of fraud during the November 3rd election. Now, the former New York mayor told Fox Business on Sunday that Georgia lawmakers started a petition to hold their own session which they are allowed to do under the Constitution, adding the GOP members are disgusted by the evidence that was shown during a hearing last week. On the program, Giuliani made reference to the State Farm Arena surveillance video in Atlanta that showed election officials pulling black containers on wheels from underneath the table after poll observers and electing election workers were sent home. And while state elections officials have said that the process was not unusual, they haven't yet answered uh, key questions raised by the Trump team when presenting presented rather with the video. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito asked officials in Pennsylvania to file briefs by the morning of December 8th in response to an emergency injunction petition filed by Republicans seeking to invalidate or rescind the results of the November 3rd presidential election in the Keystone State. Well, that day is the safe harbor deadline that requires controversies surrounding elections to be ended. So states can choose their electors before the December 14th meeting of the Electoral College. Now, the justice initially called for response arguments by December 9th before moving to the due date uh, earlier by a day. Well, the new deadline signals that the Supreme Court intends to rule on the request for the injunction before the safe harbor deadline runs out. And Georgia's DeKalb County officials don't know if it's uh, in uh, possession of the ballot transfer forms used to record the chain of custody for absentee ballots dropping into some 300 drop boxes around the state. Well, in response to an open records request from the Georgia Star News for the forms, current, uh, or rather, county officials wrote that it has not yet been determined if responsive records to your request exist. DeKalb County and the DeKalb County Department of Voting Registrants um, are currently operating within its COVID-19 emergency response plan. These remote operations and VREs currently uh, current workload uh, uh, greatly impact how soon responses uh, to these records can be provided. VRE is expected to make this determination within 30 business days. Well, the state, uh, the Georgia State Star requested the ballot forms from several counties. Cobb and Cook County had complied with the request. Well, the spokesperson for the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, told Breitbart News last week that the transfer forms are in the possession of individual counties. So that singular county apparently has lost the chain of custody and doesn't know where they are. Also, Wisconsin lawmakers this week will hold a public hearing on alleged election irregularities. The State Assembly Committee on Campaign and Elections Hearings will take place on the 11th at the Wisconsin State Capitol. It's going to deal with the investigation into numerous irregularities with the 2020 general election. Representative Ron Tussler, a Republican who chairs the committee, said in a statement, the goal of the ongoing investigation is transparency. Wisconsin voters deserve fair and accurately counted elections. I, uh, I want you to know that their vote is counted. The hearing will include testimony from eyewitnesses, experts, and election officials. And President Trump's legal team began a forensic analysis of Dominion voting machines in Michigan after a judge on the 4th permitted the uh, the examination. Our team is going to be able to go in this morning at about 8.30 and we'll be there for about eight hours to conduct that forensic examination and we'll have the results within 48 hours and that will uh, tell us a lot about these machines, Attorney Jenna Ellis, attorney for the president, said. A judge actually granted our team's access to conduct a forensic audit. Well, Ellis 
this was referring to a ruling from a judge in uh, Antrim County, Michigan, who authorized the audit of 22 Dominion voting machines, said uh, Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. It isn't clear which of the several election lawsuits the order originated from, but that uh, forensic analysis will begin. And the Arizona House and Senate have called for an audit of the Maricopa County election software and equipment following allegations of fraud there and other irregularities that were presented by the president's legal team earlier this week. In a news uh, release on Friday, GOP leaders of the Republican-controlled legislature sought an independent audit of Dominion Voting Systems software used in Maricopa County. State Senator Michelle Uh, Rita, a Republican, said that the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors is supportive of conducting an independent audit of their voting software and equipment, adding that it is important we maintain all of the voting public's confidence in our elections, and this is a positive step. Now, it's not clear or even likely that this will overturn the outcome of the election, but it may expose some irregularities that can be addressed and give us a clearer picture of whether or not these irregularities um, were inadvertent or deliberate. Well, the top U.S. intelligence official suggested on Sunday that election lawsuits and other issues need to be resolved first before the winner of the November 3rd presidential election is declared. The director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, said that issues brought up by President Donald Trump's legal team have to be heard in court. These election issues will see who is in what seats and whether there is a Biden administration, he told the broadcaster. Ratcliffe said that due to the unprecedented expansion of mail-in voting, many questions remain about the results. Essentially, we had universal mail-in balloting across the country in a way that we hadn't seen before. And to that point, almost 73 percent of American people this year voted before Election Day a good percentage of those by mail. That's about an 80% increase over anything we've ever seen before. So it's little wonder that we see what's happened uh, around the country as a result of that with mail-in balloting and all the questions and the questions that are being raised in lawsuits by everyday Americans about what happened in this election. But again, he made the statement that it's important that uh, election lawsuits and other issues be resolved before the winner of the November 3rd presidential election is declared. Now, it may not be possible, given the meeting of the Electoral College, or it certainly would be unprecedented if the questioning around all of this were to continue after the certification, the Electoral College is seated and up into the inauguration. Well, President Trump plans to outshine his rival on Inauguration Day with an opposing rally. Talk about going out with a bang. A new report from Axios claims that President Trump is considering a dramatic White House departure that includes a final Air Force One flight to Florida, where he will host an opposing rally during Joe Biden's inauguration. The Trump uh, talk uh, could create a split screen moment, the outgoing president addressing a roaring crowd in an airport hangar while the incoming leader is sworn in before a socially distanced audience outside the Capitol. People familiar with the discussions told NBC News that Trump plans to skip the swearing-in ceremony of his successor and that he has floated the idea of a Florida rally uh, to announce a 2024 bid to reclaim the White House. Well, Trump said last month that he would leave office if the Electoral College votes for President-elect Joe Biden, but also alleged massive fraud in the vote count and promised to continue with his legal battle. Asked if he would consider running again on the Republican ticket in 2024, Trump said at the time, I don't want to talk 2024 just yet. 
While the Trump campaign didn't respond to requests for comment on the likelihood of an announcement on inauguration day or a dueling event, we'll continue to follow that story. While you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle, we're going to continue to take a look at some of the day's news. There's a lot of it to cover, so we'll probably uh, have to continue to do that into tomorrow's program. Uh, but we will uh, uh, we'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump announced today big things are happening over the next couple of days. This is what he told a reporter today, that people can expect to see a lot of big things over the coming days. Well, on alleged um, election fraud, he said, I think the case has been made told reporters at the White House, and now we find out what uh, what we can do about it, but you'll see a lot of big things happening. Um, he didn't elaborate, but the president was answering a question about what his strategy will be after electors vote in the Electoral College, which is scheduled for the 14th of this month. Well, the election was totally rigged. It was a disgrace to our country, he said. It's like a third world country, these ballots pouring in from everywhere using machinery that nobody knows ownership nobody knows anything about they have glitches as they call them glitches the glitches weren't glitches they got um, caught sending out thousands of votes all against me by the way end quote that was a direct quote well starting in late november trump's legal team attended events and hearings with lawmakers from several key states arguing that the legislatures have the power under the u.s constitution to select their own electors they also presented witnesses who claim there is uh, intimidation ballot stuffing numerous ballots that should have been disqualified but weren't, and statistical irregularities. Well, secretaries of state in several states have said there isn't, uh, is not enough evidence of fraud to overturn the election. But over the weekend, a judge in Michigan allowed two dozen Dominion voting ma- uh, machines, which I mentioned earlier, in um, Antrim County to be forensically audited by the Trump legal team. The county hasn't responded to uh, additional comments, but a spokesperson, Jeremy Scott, told the Detroit Free Press that forensic images will be taken from voting machines using uh, used rather during the, the November 3rd election. Judge Kevin Eisenheimer, uh, he issued the order last week following a challenge from the Michigan voter on a separate issue related to a marijuana proposal. Well, it's hard to decide what's more outrageous, a mind-bending, impossible 570,000 ballot dump in Pennsylvania favoring Joe Biden over Donald Trump or a mainstream media blackout of of this and other election anomalies. Well, in any case, a collective media yawn is simply not the appropriate response to news such as this, at least not in a healthy republic. But then again, news such as this doesn't happen in a healthy republic, nor is, look, the election is over. Uh, pass as an uh, appropriate response. But that's exactly what we've got from Kate Bedingfield, whom Biden said just tapped to be his White House communications director. Virtually everyone on earth has accepted the truth except Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani, she said, asserting uh, that the election is over for everyone. Well, the Trump campaign has been laughed out of every courtroom, she went on to say, with their meritless and baseless lawsuits meant to undermine the will of the American people. Well, as for the Pennsylvania ballot dump bombshell, this news of a massive and decisive spike anomaly was provided by Phil Waldron. He's a retired Army colonel and former combat officer with a background in information and electronic warfare. As he uh, wrote, writes, Waldron 
who testified along with Rudy Giuliani's team, brought to the hearing his considerable expertise in analysis of election data fraud. After Waldron presented his material, the chair opened the floor for questions. Rudy Giuliani went first, asking Waldron to clarify what his uh, analytics team means when they talk about spike anomalies in voting patterns. These, as Waldron defines them, are events where a numerical amount of votes are processed in a time period that is not feasible or mechanically possible under normal circumstances. Well, Waldron showed a chart that is shockingly a, a shocking example of an apparent massive dump of votes for Joe Biden. Well, Giuliani pressed Waldron for clarification about the spike, and uh, the shocked reaction of those in attendance speaks for itself. One wonders what kind of judge would, as uh, ben, uh, Bedingfield suggested, laugh such evidence out of a courtroom or likewise the eyewitness evidence of Olivia Jane Winters, a registered Democrat and vote inspector who told of being repeatedly cursed at and threatened with bodily harm merely for having tried to enforce the state's election laws. The hearing was uh, chock full of compelling witnesses like Waldron and Winters, but the media's coverage was nearly non-existent. If you are keeping score at home, Joe Biden bagged 99.4% of that enormous chunk of votes, Donald Trump 0.6%. Well, as was said before, it's critical that every fraud charge in this election be investigated thoroughly for the sake of uh, the election and all future elections, whether in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin or Georgia or Nevada or Arizona. If we're going to have confidence in our electoral process, more confidence than, say, the people of Venezuela or Cuba have in their electoral process, we need to address both the fraud-friendly nature of mass mail-in balloting as well as the potential for data manipulation in our vote counting machines. Well, uh, we're the world's most advanced country. We've been a beacon of freedom and democracy uh, to all other nations. We put a man on the moon more than a half a century ago. It's uh, is a reliable, tamper-resistant election system too much to ask for. How about a free press that helps safeguard such a system, at least covering stories where questions are being asked and answered? And a conservative woman just broke new ground, but the media is, well, nowhere to be found. Ever since Joe Biden became our nation's presumptive next president, the media has been bending over backwards to celebrate historic firsts for women. Well, this past week alone, they couldn't get enough of the first female college football player kicking in a Power Five conference. Kamala Harris hiring the first all-female senior vice presidential staff. Or Biden choosing the first all-female senior press team a claim that was quickly proven untrue. Certainly, women deserve credit for breaking glass ceilings and rising to powerful positions. Therefore, we should also be able to expect that when the uh, powerful position is held by a first female from either political party, lands the powerful role of a leading House Energy and Commerce Committee, the media would celebrate it as well. Well, in an era of progressive privilege, not if she's a Republican. Well, on Wednesday, the Republican Steering Committee selected Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Republican from Washington, to become the ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Well, this means McMorris Rogers will lead one of the most influential committees in Congress with jurisdiction over health care, the energy sector and big tech. And many of the major decisions Congress makes in our country or makes for our country originate there in that committee it's the oldest continuously standing committee in the house has never had a female from either party at its helm until now well mcmorris rogers is one of the most level-headed down-to-earth members of congress she grew up in eastern washington working on an orchard at a first um, a fruit stand rather and helping her family's small business 
Uh, it's uh, there that she learned the value of hard work, which she'll continue in this historic position that nobody heard about. Well, in Sunday's rare December runoff debate in Georgia, the two candidates for U.S. Senate repeatedly drove home the point that the stakes could not be any higher, and they're both right. Conservative Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler and leftist Democratic candidate Reverend Raphael Warnick engaged in a heated debate that showcased their hugely different visions for America's future in a race that polls show is well within the margin of error. Loeffler had an outstanding performance in the debate and made it clear why she would be should be elected or reelected. On the other hand, Warnick failed to make the case why Georgia should risk their vote on his um, liberal candidacy, even in a liberal administration. Warnock's beliefs are far outside the mainstream of Georgia values. He defended and praised Marxism. He signed a letter harshly criticizing Israel in 2019 and has not answered questions about whether he attended a speech given by a Cuban dictator, Fidel Castro, at a church he worked for in 1995. It comes as no surprise that Warnock refuses to release most of his graduate thesis from Union Theological Seminary. While hailing from a state that has an enormous active military population in one of his sermons, Warnock said, America, nobody can serve God and be in the military. To date, Warnock has refused to adequately explain his statement, and Sunday night's debate was no exception. He also failed to answer questions about his uh, unacceptable and offensive statement about our historic law enforcement officers saying American families who who depend on police for security in their neighborhoods should be concerned about radical liberal Democrat Warnock's intentions. Police officers are not gangsters and thugs as Warnock described them in 2015. Police reform? Yeah. Elimination? The majority of Americans, including African Americans, say no. Meanwhile, Democrat John Ossoff, who's vying to unseat Georgia Senator David Perdue on uh, the fifth, uh, January 5th runoff election, stood next to an empty podium at a town hall Sunday night in Atlanta and slammed his opponent for bowing out of the face-off. He actually didn't bow out. He never agreed to do it. He's so arrogant, um, uh, Ossoff said, that he disregarded public health expertise and so arrogant that he's not with us here today to answer questions. Your senator feels entitled to your vote. He believes this Senate seat belongs to him. Uh, Ossoff said of his Republican incumbent. Well, Purdue has uh, debated Ossoff twice previously, but denied an invitation from the Atlanta Free Press to do it again. And while he has been enriching himself, his opponent Ossoff said in office, he's uh, been blocking relief. He continued noting that Purdue was opposed to the first round of stimulus checks in the previous COVID-19 relief bill. Well, the Democrat frequently uh, brought up Purdue's stock trades, which were investigated for Insider trading after he bought up stocks for Pfizer and PPE maker DuPont. A number of senators have come under fire for their trades after a closed-door briefing on coronavirus at Purdue claims he had uh, did not attend. Well, debate moderator said Ossoff uh, that Purdue's trade had been federally investigated and resulted in no charge. But the one-sided debate went on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up. Well, for more than four years, dozens of American diplomats and intelligence personnel stationed in Cuba, Russia, and China, and even the U.S., 
I have reported a range of odd ailments from fatigue and headaches to impaired hearing, dizziness, and memory loss with no known origin or cause. But according to a government-commissioned report that was released by the National Acad- uh, Academies rather, of Science over the weekend, the illness dubbed Havana Syndrome is most likely the result of direct microwave radiation. The working theory established by a committee of 19 experts in medical and related fields pinpointed uh, directed pulse radio frequency energy as the most plausible mechanism to have triggered the wave of maladies. And while the report didn't attribute blame or state the, uh, that the likely attacks were the work of malicious intent, it said the sickness stemmed from pulsed and directed frequencies seemingly emanating from a specific area in the room. Uh, in a well-honed direction. Well, this indicates that the exposure wasn't continuous or induced by a secondary culprit, such as a microwave or mobile phone. Well, a retired CIA operative uh, said on Monday that he was a victim of one of these attacks while in a hotel room in Russia back in 2017. Since the episode, uh, he says that he has been suffering from debilitating uh, migraines for at least three years and the constant sense of something being very wrong. I have a terrible headache that is never going away and the loss of long distance vision, tinnitus, ringing in the ears and so on. Well, he assumes he was probably targeted in Moscow because he was one of the officers in charge of overseeing America's efforts against the Russian government. As for the findings from the report, which only examined those impacted in Cuba and not across the globe, uh, he says that it was a welcome relief after his symptoms were dismissed by senior medical agency personnel. A renowned group of scientists telling us we weren't making this up, um, that this was, um, uh, wasn't psychosomatic, I imagine. Um, uh, others have a sense of relief as well. But the Academy's analysis didn't attribute blame to any of the foreign powers. Still, it did illuminate for the decades-long use of the tactic in radio frequency research, specifically by Russia, giving more credence to long-held speculation of Moscow being uh, behind these sorts of attacks. Peggy Latshaw's work as a fitness instructor evaporated last spring when gyms and hospitals were, where she worked shut down all their, um, their classes at the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, like hundreds of thousands of Oregonians, she found herself jobless overnight. And also, like hundreds of thousands of Oregonians, she found herself unable to secure her jobless benefits from the Oregon Employment Department or reach the Employment Department to find out why she hadn't been paid. Well, months after the pandemic started, the department's phone lines remain jammed and the information the state's sending out to laid off workers is often wrong. And while the vast majority of laid off workers have now been paid and the Employment Department has comprehensive claims information available online and an updated contact form for raising issues, it continues to struggle to communicate individually with jobless Oregonians about their benefits, and its outdated computers keep mailing out redundant, contradictory, and erroneous letters. And apparently, there's nothing they can do about it. In fact, the headline on the subject reads, Oregon's computers keep sending erroneous letters to jobless workers. The state says there's no stopping them. Maybe the computers have become sentient. Well, anyway, Mrs. Latshaw's case, the 66-year-old, doesn't have a computer, so she began writing letters to the employment department last spring, filling out their forms and sending them in to demonstrate her eligibility. She figures she sent one a week in April through the end of August, with nothing but silence from the state. Well, as far as she knew, those letters never found their way to anybody's desk. Well, in October, though, the employment department's computers suddenly started writing back 
in a single day, she received 27 individual letters all telling her the same thing, that she hadn't properly filed her claim and she wouldn't receive any money. She says, I have this huge pile. It was just huge sitting outside my door because I was still living in shared housing. Uh, She was living in Milwaukee at the time. She said she was distraught and desperate as her financial options were dwindling. Well, the very next day, however, she opened her door and saw an even bigger pile of envelopes, 34 separate letters from the employment department containing 34 separate checks. I had just been told the claims were being denied and I wasn't eligible. The next day I received $12,000. That's all said she was, uh, (laughs) was delighted that the money finally arrived, albeit several months late, but continues to rue the long stretch when she couldn't get answers and what little information she could get was incorrect. Well, the, the employment department has revolved, uh, resolved rather many of the problems that uh, delayed benefits payments for weeks or months through this spring and summer as the coronavirus set in. It has now paid out more than $6 billion altogether to more than 600,000 Oregonians since the middle of March. But the department hasn't addressed the chronic misinformation in the automated letters Its computers generate a relic of an age decades ago when mail was best and often only the the only option for distributing information. Well, the letters have caused confusion and anxiety for thousands of jobless Oregonians all year long, an ongoing symptom of the larger issue underlying the department's obsolete computer system. It makes you um, feel like, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I get this fixed? Said uh, Blatshaw, who finally received her payments. Uh, I'm doing what they're asking, and it's not working out. Well, that apparently was the case for many Oregonians. The computers keep sending out these erroneous letters to jobless workers, the state says, and there's no stopping them. Well, let's hope that's not the case, that there's something they can do ultimately to stop them. Well, here in Oregon, a surfer was attacked by a shark off the Oregon coast. Fellow surfers pulled him out of the water. Now, first of all, you have to be a little bit crazy to surf in uh, uh, in on the Oregon coast in the Pacific Ocean, but surfers, I should mention, the surfer is expected to survive, but surfers do congregate along the Oregon coast, and during a pandemic, perhaps that seems a bit better than just staying at home. Well, a surfer is expected to survive a shark attack off the coast of Oregon after suffering injuries that were not life-threatening to his lower leg. This is on Sunday. The incident happened at about 3.30 in the area of Seaside Cove near the resort of uh, city of Seaside According to officials there, first responders found the adult male surfer with injuries to the lower leg being carried to the parking lot by fellow surfers. Uh, An off-duty Seaside Beach lifeguard had applied a a field tourniquet to help slow the bleeding. Officials uh, shared photos of the scene and of the local surfer's surfboard, which had the markings of the shark bite indented into the uh, surface. Uh, the crew rushed the man to the local hospital where he was evaluated in the trauma unit. Officials credited bystanders, fire and police units, and the medics team with saving the man's life. He did not have the opportunity to bleed out, which would have happened. And the incident serves as a valuable reminder to never recreate, uh, recreate alone in or out of the water, officials say. The fast response of fellow surfers was instrumental in providing aid to this victim. So don't recreate, as they say, alone in the water. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And I want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.